This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Just Break Up, the podcast about love, heartbreak, and all the relationship advice you don't want to hear. My name is Sierra DeMolder. And I'm Sam Blackwell. And this week on Head and Heart Work Conversations, we're talking to Casey Tanner. Casey, whose pronouns are they, she, is an ASECT certified sex therapist who combines evidence-based research, queer-affirming care, and pleasure activism to cultivate powerful relationships. Specializing in gender and sexual diversity, Casey partners with individuals, relationships, and institutions to expand limited minds, vets, foster courageous behavior, and empower meaningful change around gender and sexuality. She is the creator of Queer Sex Therapy, an Instagram account that provides free sex educational services through an expansive and queer-friendly lens. Thank you so much for being here today, Casey. You're so welcome. It's interesting (laughs) to have that all read back to me because (laughs) I'm like, wow, I do do a lot of things. Yes, you (laughs) do. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. (sighs) How are you? Doing well. We're doing great. Yeah, we're just excited that you're here. You, um, when we asked our listeners for folks who we should interview, um, you were one of the people that we had Aww. multiple requests for. So, wow. um, yeah, it's super exciting to have you, and just know that, like, at least in the the demographics of our listeners, your your um, your Instagram account is having <laughs> a lot of impact on people. So that's oh, that's super thank exciting. You. Thanks. Yeah, which um, actually leads us to the first question, which is that um, we're just curious about. What brought you into this work and why did you decide that Instagram was going to be the right platform Mm. for you to be able to do it? Mm -hmm. Well, I I actually went to school to become a pastor, a youth pastor, and I was raised like Mm. super religious, evangelical Christian. And I love this uh, journey for you. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) You can only imagine what happened between then and now. Yeah, Um, college. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, I, I, had to come out as queer at a school where you literally had to sign a document saying that you won't act gay. I mean, that's wow. a, you know, a paraphrase, but essentially mm-hmm. that's what it says. Um, and I had to really come to terms with what the environment I was in was doing to my mental health in that context. And I, I shifted gears from pastoral counseling to actual psychology and started to understand like why why religion was creating so much trauma for me and mm. how much trauma it creates for a lot of people in the queer community. So that was sort of my way into thinking wow. about psychology. And then it was through my own personal journey with my therapist that I realized how, how powerful therapy can be um, specifically if a therapist is brave and brave enough to talk about things like sex and queerness, mm-hmm. which, you know, 
shouldn't have to be brave, but especially 10 years ago was very brave. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I just sort of wanted to be her when I grew up. I followed Mm -hmm. that path and one thing led to another. The Instagram piece was a a total accident. I was 28. So this is two years ago. I had never had an Instagram account before. I knew nothing about social media. And I randomly just started talking about sex. And I think I posted a, a post about um, ethical porn sites that Mm. went a little bit viral. Mm. And I was like, wow, people are hungry for this. And then COVID hit and we all were hungry and also had nothing to do. So (laughs) it just sort of happened. And it it was a happy accident that, that totally shifted the course of my life actually. That's wonderful. You're actually the second creator. uh, I'll, I'll say creator, even though you're so much more than that, but like content creator (laughs) online who had like this, COVID inspiration, <laughs> you know, yeah. when that had this time to put their thoughts and expertise and inspiration into content to sh- that's shareable um, and ha- and saw saw the cultural, like the societal response to that. You're right. Mm-hmm. We were we were hungry. We were looking inward. We were looking outward. We were mm-hmm. staying home. You know, it was just like a very interesting time to be online consumers. Um, yeah. So absolutely. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say the there's so much power in distraction. Um, distraction allows us to not look at parts of ourselves that are really hard to look at. And I think what happened mm-hmm. for a lot of us is we had to look at those parts of ourselves. Yeah. And for mm-hmm. some people, it was queerness that they had never totally. come to terms with. For some people, it was, wow, my relationship's not in the place that I thought it was when I had mm-hmm. all this distraction. And so I think that fed that hunger we're talking about. Totally. For sure. Yeah. I, I I can think of a dozen people off the top of my ha- ha- head, whether they came out during that time, mm-hmm. transi- started their transition during that time, or like started a different kind of transition and left their spouses of years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. So Sam and I have collected a couple, uh, a handful of questions that are primarily inspired by our letter writers. You know, we see one of the things I love most about the work that we do is that we see people's extreme individuality and our connection like that, that there are so many common threads in the hundreds and hundreds of letters that we've gotten over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, And while we can have our own unique differences, our own unique specifications in our relationships or whatever, that we see these common refrains. And so we've collected some sex-oriented questions from our listeners um, or the things that Sam and I hear the most. But before we get into them, we're curious, um, what are what are the common threads or refrains that come up in your work mm. the most th- from mm-hmm. your perspective? Yeah. So I work with what's called a psychodynamic lens, which means I'm often connecting the past or a client's history to what's going on in the present. Mm-hmm. And so I mean, the, the theme I'm always working with is attachment style. Yeah. The way we show mm. up in relationships. I mean, we all learned the template for our relationships through parent figures, sibling relationships, and some of those like very early childhood experiences. So one of the biggest themes is if we want to understand what's going on for you today, we have to look at ways in which you were hurt or, or things were modeled for you, um, or both. And so one ma- massive theme is what are you bringing into this relationship that actually isn't about the partner or partner sitting in front of you, but is actually mm-hmm. about something that maybe happened 10 or 20 years ago. 
I think that's the first thing. The second thing is this question, am I enough? I mean, that's Mm -hmm. just always, I feel like that's sort of the question underneath questions always is, um, am I queer enough? Um, does my sex life look the way that it should look? Is Mm. our relationship as passionate as other people's Mm. relationships? And I think that question, am I enough is always connected to comparison. And so comparison is another theme that I'm often seeing. Mm. And then I think there's different themes depending on gender, but specifically for people, um, who, lacked such sex education or saw sex education through an incredibly male-centric, penis-centric lens, a mm-hmm. massive theme is just that these very small pieces of accurate information can change people's sex lives. Mm-hmm. And specifically as it relates to people who maybe have never had an orgasm before, but are just missing one key accurate piece of information to get themselves there. So yeah. sure. that's another big one. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. And I think we get a lot of letters about that kind of stuff too, especially that piece around enough of um, how am I comparing myself to other people? And I'm always coming up short when it comes to what my understanding of other people's lives are or my ex's new or new girlfriend mm-hmm. is like this, right? Like it's always just like, we're all, always comparing and we're always like never meeting we're the, losers. the expectations. We're always exactly. the losers in the compare. Well, because we're always comparing the reality of our lives to the curated version <laughs> of other people's lives, right? Yes, yeah, totally. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. So one of the big questions that we get from folks who write into us is about um, mismatched libidos um, and sort of this question of I either I really want to have way more sex than my partner does, but I don't want to make them feel bad mm-hmm. or like force them or push them or coerce them into sex. But I'm mm-hmm. also really unhappy or yeah. from the other way, which is to say, like, my partner keeps telling me that they want to have more sex and I just can't get into it. I'm, I mean, they're not feeling it or there's like a block there. Um, and I'm curious, as you work with individuals and couples, what are some of the things that you help folks do when they're in that situation? Mm-hmm. So I think we are taught that you either have a high sex drive or you have a high or a low sex drive, or maybe you have no sex drive if you're somebody that's ace. But the reality is that there's just different kinds of desire. And the two mm-hmm. main kinds of desire are what's called responsive desire and spontaneous desire. So responsive desire, people who lean towards responsive desire, they need a little bit more work to get into a headspace where they want to have sex. And sometimes that work is creating a sensual context, like going on a date and having a really deep emotional conversation. And that mm-hmm. is sort of the bridge that leads to arousal. Sometimes it's um, it's contextual in the sense that they're not going to get aroused if, if the lights are turned on, it's the middle of the workday, but if it's evening and there's a mood that's set and the timing is right, then they're way more likely to become aroused. Mm-hmm. And then you have folks who lean towards that spontaneous desire. Often those are the folks coming in saying, I have a, high, I have a really high sex drive, but what actually is going on there is they're able to desire sex for what feels like out of nowhere. Mm-hmm for no particular reason. They're like mm-hmm. maybe even sometimes frustrated by how often they want sex and it seems sure. to be happening at totally the wrong moment. <laughs> sure. That's the other extreme. And oft, it's not at all uncommon that these 
people partner together, that somebody with responsive desire would partner with someone who has more spontaneous desire. But Mm. what ends up happening is you get what's called desire discrepancy. You get this difference in sex drive, which means one person is not having sex nearly as much as they want to. And the other person is maybe having sex more than they want to. And the issue, the place to intervene is not in, you know, the person who wants more sex, just asking for more sex or pushing more sex. We know that's not the answer, but it's actually conversations about ways to bridge the gap between what it feels like to be in our day-to-day life and what it needs to feel like in order to be open to arousal for that person Mm -hmm. who has that more responsive desire. So maybe it's, you know, I can't go straight from 6 p.m. when I get off my last call into a mood where I want to get naked with you. That's way too much of a shift. But if we have a glass of wine, if you ask me about my day, if we spend a little bit of time cuddling where I know sex isn't sort of the end-all be-all, then actually Mm -hmm. I find myself opening up to you in a different way. Some people use scheduling sex. Um, and I, I sort of shift that and say, don't schedule sex. That's a lot of pressure, but schedule intimacy, schedule, Mm. um, schedule a time you can take a shower together where sex is off the table. If it leads there. Okay. But that's not the goal and Mm. removing like penetrative sex as a goal actually can open people with responsive desire up so much more. Just takes time. Yeah. That's that's fascinating. fascinating. I know. I'd never heard of those terms. Have you, did you, have you, Sam, have you heard of those terms before? I've never heard those terms before either. So this is great. We're learning something from from this conversation. Both in long-term partnerships talk and I'll talk about our own lives and, and, and letter writers about the ebbs and flows of desire and how, how tricky it can be, but it gives you a whole, I love, I love that so much because I feel like shared language gives us the opportunity to articulate ourselves so much more better um, or so much better. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And that, that even just thinking about desire as something that's not going, it's not only, it's not only is it going to be one, not one size fits all, but that there are different styles of desire and how it shows up and whatnot. Um, Mm. That's so helpful. Y'all, as a self-employed person, as a mom of a toddler, I am always struggling with finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now I use Rocket Money and it does all of that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, you have full control over your subscriptions and a clear view of your expenses. You can see all your subscriptions in one place. And if you see something you don't want, Rocket Money can help cancel it with a few taps. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month. So I can clearly see my spending habits and check myself if needed. Plus, they'll help me create a custom budget and keep my spending on track. Rocket Money will even help try to negotiate 
to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you, which I obviously love as a somewhat introverted, conflict-avoidant person. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Rocket Money has over 5 million subscribers and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash just break up. That's rocketmoney.com slash just break up. Rocketmoney.com slash just break up. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets, sweaters, and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune, and luckily I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. Quince has things like premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. And the best part is that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. This past month, I treated myself to a pair of new slippers because I'm in that hashtag mom life era of my life um, in which (laughs) um, I am never not in slippers. And these are 100% Australian shearling lined clog slippers. And I love that they're slip on, but they have those durable rubber outsoles. They're super cushy, super comfortable, but I feel like I can run outside to like take the trash out in them while also like staying warm and active in the house. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash just break up for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash just break up to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash just break up. Another question we see a lot in our letters and like also like in my real life <laughs> uh, is just... Is this just a question from you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, in general, I think we see a lot of questions about how to communicate um, your sexual desires. Like what does communication in bed really look like and how can I do it even mm-hmm. though I feel so uncomfortable, number one. But more importantly, at least for me... <laughs> Um, is I remember so many times in the past when I was younger that I would, you know, even in relationships where I felt a lot of love and intimacy, I would struggle to ask for what I wanted in bed because I would be afraid of triggering a sense of inadequacy Mm -hmm. or trigger them to feel like they were less than or whatever. And I think so often, you know, um, we have been conditioned that, uh, in sex, you, you just need to put on, you need to perform, you need mm-hmm. to be whatever you need to be. Um, and yeah. So how do you, how do you, how do you move forward confidently in communicating in bed, in bed about your desires and needs without being sort of frozen by that fear uh, of making your partner feel inadequate? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we we all not not all of us, but most of us, unless we've done a ton of work in this area, have an immense amount of fragility around this topic, and it's so understandable that we do because mm. there's this idea that within this context, we need to be everything for a partner. And it's so interesting that we're worried that they'll think they're inadequate really because they can't read our minds because that's what's mm. happening. <laughs> yeah. we, can't, mm-hmm. we don't know what somebody wants unless they ask for it. And so often it's not about anyone being inadequate. It's just simply, well, we've never talked about the fact that you want this before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly there are ways to ask these questions that help with, um, help protect feelings like saying, Hey, I want to try this because I want to connect with you more deeply, or I want more of you, or I want you in this way that I haven't had Mm -hmm. you before. And the way that you say that matters. And to a certain extent, I think accepting that those feelings are going to arise as a baseline. And yeah, even, you're not going to be able to change that. <laughs> even right? as I was listening to your beautiful, eloquent response, in the back of my mind, I was like, the question really should be, how do we change the fragility culture <laughs> exactly. around sexual performance? Right. Not right. how do we change right. the way we ask for what we need? You totally. know what I mean? <laughs> right. And, and I mean, mm-hmm. the, the better question maybe is when your partner's stuff gets activated in this conversation, yes. which it mm-hmm. is likely to get activated, how do you hold mm-hmm. space for that? Right? Because okay. that's the work. Um, and I think it's just making room for like, all right, what did it like, what did it feel like for me to ask you that? I know I noticed that I was nervous to ask yeah. you. This is what I was worried mm-hmm. about. Why are we nervous about this? Well, it's not because of us. And and I think you can actually team up in that moment and realize, like, wow, you've you've all everyone in the relationship has been done a disservice by our culture around this. And so how do we as an erotic team like work together to realize we can talk about sex without it having to mean something so core to who we are? Sam and I are really vibing on the term erotic <laughs> team. Erotic team. We both, <laughs> we both just had a moment. <laughs> yeah. That's our new nickname for ourselves. That's for sure. Here, <laughs> and Sam, uh, host of the podcast and also erotic team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. <laughs> Even though, yeah. All right, never mind. Yeah, like, <laughs> no. That's awesome. And I think that, that that spirit of curiosity and communication about ourselves as well as our partner and like that sort of, we talk all the time about like, tackling problems as a team and not viewing each other as the problem. Or adversaries. Um, but that's really hard, I think, when it comes to sex, because like sex is so fraught and so like this idea that you're either good or bad at it and there's like mm-hmm. no in between and you can right. like never change. It's just right. like... Right. And then adding like like, gender stereotypes that I I thought about gender so much in there and like male Mm -hmm. fragility and, you know, things like that. I mean, we're all fragile. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting, too, how many times when somebody is is brave enough to ask these questions to their partner, they find that their partner has similar desires that they're like, I've been wanting that, too, and not knowing how to ask for it. Or I've been wanting something Mm. else. I didn't know it was a thing that I could do to ask for it. Yeah, And you're creating a different culture in your relationship where you can talk about sex and couples that have the best sex lives are those that talk about sex most often. I mean, that's, sure. you know, there's a de- definite correlation there. Wow. That's, that's great. Um, cool. Um, one of the other things that we get asked a lot too is around um, sex after trauma. So frequently mm-hmm. you'll get folks who are letter writers who have gone through something traumatic um, often like a sexual trauma of some sort, assault or, or something like that. 
and just trying to get back into a place where they feel like they can be intimate with their partner. Um, Mm -hmm. And obviously we don't want you to like say like, there's a one size fits all approach to this, but wondering (laughs) if there are things that folks, resources that folks can Mm -hmm. look into or Mm -hmm. patterns that they can use, tools that they can adopt for themselves as they think about how to, how to get over that hurdle to Mm -hmm. being more intimate with the partner who they love and who they want to be close with. Yeah, definitely. Um, A book that comes to mind is Better Sex Through Mindfulness by Lori Brado. Um, It's a book that is specifically geared towards people who identify as women who have experienced sexual trauma um, Mm. and are trying to recover their desire post-trauma. And I always say, like, if the the trauma survivor in the relationship is going to read a resource, the other people in the relationship also need to read the same resource because mm-hmm. that, you know, it, it takes, it takes more than just the survivor doing work on this. It takes a really trauma informed partner or partners to, um, to be aware of what might come up. Because I think often when I'm working with trauma survivors, they're so worried about getting triggered midway through sex and really mm-hmm. messing up their relationship or making their partner feel a certain way. But if they know that their partner has some education around this and is ready for that moment, if the trigger comes and how to handle it in the moment, then actually sort of lowers the barrier for the survivor to have sex because they know, okay, if, if worst case scenario happens and I do spiral, my partner, you know, is on board with our plan of action for, for care in that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, so that piece is so huge, but I think you got to take it really slow. I mean, sometimes just talking about sex after trauma is an exposure within itself. It's, it's, and anxiety provoking within itself. And so it may be that before you can approach having sex, you're listening to a podcast about sex just to get yourself used to hearing about it in a safe context mm. again. And then, mm. you know, obviously therapy, therapy, therapy for the couple for sure. and for the individual. For sure. Absolutely. Another huge question we get uh, is how do I explore my new budding queerness Um, (laughs) coupled with the anxiety that you kind of touched on earlier, which is, am I queer enough? You know, I think that I'm queer or bisexual, but I'm in a hetero relationship or whatever that is. There's, there's this underlying anxiety Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and also this, this fear of inadequacy and like, at, in something that should be sort of empowering and, and exp- explorative becomes really terrifying, you know, like yeah. I've only been with men or I've only been with women. How do I explore these new mm-hmm. uh, queer relationships? Um, you know, we get simple questions like how do I t- talk to, to people um, of the mm-hmm. same gender or, or of a different gender, you know, that I've been with mm-hmm. Um and also how do I initiate sex? You know, any, any advice in that realm? Yeah, totally. I, I feel like I actually spend quite a bit of time in therapy with people who are just trying to get themselves to shift their dating apps over from one <laughs> yeah. gender to a different gender or to all genders. Sure. That yep. moment carries a lot of anxiety for people because, you know, 
for people who have been um, living and dating as if they're straight, but now realize they're a gay person or a lesbian person, shifting over means suddenly I'm now engaging with people that actually I would be incredibly hurt to be rejected by. And that feels Mm. different than being rejected by, you know, for women, a straight guy who, you know, at the end of the day, I wasn't actually that attracted to to begin with, right? This is much scarier now for for bi people and um, pan people that, you know, that's a little bit different. But what what I'll often talk about is um, a lot of normalizing. We are Everyone who who comes out later in life has this moment. And often on first dates in the queer community, we talk about this moment with each other. Like, when did you know? When did you come out? What was your experience? Mm-hmm. And there is such a built-in empathy to the community to receive people that are new to the experience because we've we've all been there in one way or another, unless you are somebody um, that that came out really early in life. So that's one piece of it. I think you know queer imposter syndrome is something I talk about a lot. Um, and interestingly enough, people who have been out for a minute experience it, and people who have been out for twenty years experience it. There's mm. always, and again, that question: Am I enough? Right? It doesn't matter how many piercings and tattoos you've gotten, and how many people of the same gender or whatever you've dated. Um, There's still, I think, part of us that's going to ask that question. That um, is, unfortunately, sort of. Um, What's ironic about it is in, in having that question, you're actually participating in the queer experience because <laughs> sure, it's such yeah. a queer thing to wonder, right? Uh-huh. Uh, so there's that piece of things. Um, a great, very concrete in within the queer world, know your astrology. Queers <laughs> love astrology. <laughs> if you don't know what to talk about, oh my God. you know, talk about that you're a Scorpio. I don't Well, maybe That's don't real. say you're a Scorpio. Maybe, maybe we're, we're, both, we're both Gemini's. We have the same, we have the same birthday. Yeah. And so we know people love or hate us. Yes, right. <laughs> or like a lot of our listeners write in and say like, thanks for giving me a different perspective on Gemini's. <laughs> you know, that they're not just like serial killers. <laughs> I will date a Gemini again after listening to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty much that's it. Really, yeah. That's literally the point of the podcast is just to like humanize Gemini. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but yeah, I feel like I, I sort of half answered the question. But the other thing I'll say is everybody within a particular gender is different. And so every first date you go on, you are encountering someone new for the first time. The person you're sitting across from, even yeah. if they've dated in the queer world for 10 years, are, they're new to you. And there's a level f- playing field in that because sex with women, for example, isn't just sex with women. Like, right. It's about mm-hmm. learning an individual person's body. Um, and so I think um, we walk in a lot more equipped than we think we are. And also the other person walking in is a lot, often a lot less confident than we're projecting that they are. So, sure. so much of it is projection. That's such yeah, a that's- great point. Such a good point, for sure. Um, and one of the things that also comes tied up with that, too, is that when folks are beginning this sort of deeper understanding of themselves and their queerness, and they might be feeling unsure about whether or they are or are not queer, and this fear that they often have of like, I don't want to lead the other person on, or I don't want them to think that I'm experimenting with them and their bodies, or that I'm not respecting them in that way. 
Um, so I'm just curious if you have mm-hmm. any thoughts about how to how to get over that hurdle as well. Yeah. Well, the word experimenting has been so used against queer people to, mm. you know, it, it sort of goes along with that a phrase like it's just a phase, right? You'll get over it, um, which is which has been so incredibly harmful. But if we if we sort of take away that layer and we just think about the word experimenting, like what is so bad about that? We are all always moving through the world experimenting. How do we mm-hmm. know what we like and who we like if we're not experimenting? Even if you've been straight for twenty years and you're sitting across from a new man you're experimenting. You don't know if you're going to like this guy, right? True. So why True, is it yeah. suddenly different <laughs> when you're sitting across from someone of the same gender? Now, you may get people in the queer community who who stigmatize that or um, mm-hmm. who are resistant to date somebody that is new to the community. That's very real. Um, and in part, uh, it's it's quite unfair. And, um, and I think there's a lot of biphobia wrapped up in that. But often when that happens, it's not actually about um, thinking that the person who's new to queerness is invalid. It's often that somebody has been through perhaps a very painful journey around coming out and mm. the fear of going through that with another person, right? So it's it's really not about the new person. It's about their own their experience. Wound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, asexuality earlier, um, and I feel like that is another um, thing uh, that comes up in our letters for our listeners that Sam and I, we try to speak to, we try to affirm, but because we both don't identify as asexual, I feel mm-hmm. like it can it can be a blind spot for us. We definitely try to remember the spectrum of sexuality, um, but if you can you just speak a little bit about what asexual asexuality is and Mm -hmm. any advice you have for folks who are maybe thinking that that's something that they could identify with language that they can use resources, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So most people who are asexual are not sexually attracted to anyone, but I think some common misconceptions about that are that that means that they don't have sex or that they can't experience any kind of physical arousal in their bodies. Um, mm. And again, like there's a spectrum within, a within spectrum. people who <laughs> identify as ace, right? Um, but often people who are ace may still choose to engage in sex for all sorts of reasons. Maybe it's a fun activity, even though it doesn't arise from a sexual attraction. Maybe they have a partner who's not asexual and it, and it is meaningful to them to still mm-hmm. engage in sex in that relationship. So I think really important to remove the label from the behavior that we associated with it. Just like, you know, you can identify as a lesbian without ever having slept with a woman before. Right. right. right? right. Um, but, um, you know, important to, you know, also talk about people who are aromantic, um, who may experience sexual attraction, but don't experience romantic attraction. Some people who are asexual are also aromantic. Some people mm-hmm. are, um, some people are both. Um, yeah, that's a little, a little bit of a one-on-one, but I don't identify as asexual either. Great resource for that on Instagram is at ace and ace in grace. Um, they are doing great education around that. Great. Um, so one of the other questions that we get from folks, um, or at least actually we don't actually get this question. I think this is me and Sierra sort of projecting <laughs> our own understanding on our, our listeners. Oh my God. It's literally, <laughs> we're, 
listeners, dear listeners, we are projecting this question onto you for your benefit. <laughs> Whether you like it or not, it's for you. That's your right. Benefit. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're like your, remember, we're, we're your queer mom and dad and we're doing yes, what's best for you. <laughs> um, so talking to your therapist about sex, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so I've been in therapy for most of my adult life and I struggle with talking to my therapist about sex, even though we can talk about all of the other things that we that have affected me, like my deepest secrets. Um, what? How do you recommend doing that? How do you recommend mm-hmm. talking to your therapist, opening up, finding that vulnerability to be able to talk about mm-hmm. it with somebody who knows you and wants to help support you, mm-hmm. especially if that therapist isn't a designated sex therapist right. and is actually just your mental health practitioner? Yeah, I mean... I guess my my question back to you is, does your therapist regularly ask you about sex? Mm. No, he does not. <laughs> yeah, that would, might be my guess, right? We right. As therapists, we are curious about most everything else besides our clients' sex lives, which is so mm. interesting because of how big our sex lives play wow. a role in our lives. Whether you're For having sure. zero <laughs> sex or a ton of sex, it's part of us. Um, so I would say, you know, you're not to blame for this. They're not asking you those questions. It is very hard to walk in as a client and, and control the direction into, uh, an area that the therapist isn't trying to address and isn't assessing for. So, you know, if you are somebody who is looking for a therapist, not currently in therapy, really recommend looking for an ASEC certified sex therapist. Um, we are not, just trained in sex therapy. We're trained in the same things that all other therapists are trained in. Plus we have additional schooling in sex therapy. So we are asking people about sex from the first appointment to the last appointment um, mm. at, as, mm. a, as an integrated part of, of holistic work. But if you're somebody in therapy for a long time and it's not part of the culture of that relationship to talk about sex, I think that a great place to begin is talking about talking about sex. So Mm. saying, like, I realize we don't talk about this a lot here and seeing where that takes you versus like, I like to talk about masturbation today, which bravo (laughs) if you can do that. But it might be interesting to have that first conversation around like, I realize we don't talk about this. And I think I'm interested in talking about this and seeing what your therapist does with that. There are a lot of therapists that are not... um, you know, they're not up to date on information around sexuality Mm. and there's almost Mm. no training in this in graduate programs. So you Mm. might find that when you ask your therapist that they disappoint you. And that's because our, you know, the therapist education system is really disappointing in this area. doesn't mean that you can't still find really meaningful work with that therapist around it. But what a lot of people do choose to do, um, is loop in a sex therapist for a time, Um, Mm. and have an additional space where um, they can do that work. I think that also happens when maybe somebody's been seeing a straight therapist or a monogamous therapist for a really long time. Now Mm -hmm. they're exploring a different part of their identity and they really want to work with someone who can mirror them in that way. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that if you are bringing in a specialist for a particular topic, it is okay to sometimes loop in a second person if you feel like your therapist isn't, isn't equipped for the conversation. But try sure. it before you decide that. Sure. That's great. Yeah. That's so helpful, too, because I think people, so many issues with sex that we collectively, culturally have with sex have to do with a sense of shame, a mm-hmm. sense of secrecy, a sense of inadequacy. Um, and those things are hard to articulate 
in general add to that weird purity pressure and mm-hmm. heteronormativity and the complicated freakish nature of a lot of sex and fantasy and stuff like that um it's helpful just to remember that like our therapists are impacted by the same purity culture yeah for sure mm-hmm. yeah yep yeah and maybe we should outsource to a, a specialist or, or whatnot um yeah that's really helpful Okay, so we like to ask all of our interviewees um, this question. What is a piece of relationship advice that you used to believe that you no longer ascribe, subscribe to? Sam, ascribe or subscribe? subscribe? I, th- I think subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> ascribing is like ascribing I, a, a quote to someone, I think. So, Spencer, you don't have to edit this out because <laughs> it's a thing in our fucking podcast where I, I am literally a published, I'm a published author and I like routinely say words wrong or like make up words. It's kind of a great though. Uh, you know, sometimes yeah, you and, might find a word that's even better than the real. Yeah. One. I yeah love it. The other day, <laughs> I don't even remember. Um, okay. Anyway. So what is a piece of relationship mm-hmm. advice that you used to believe um, that no longer serves you or you don't believe anymore? Speaking of purity, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? Seriously, yeah. Don't don't even start me on that one. But <laughs> I think I think what's coming to mind is uh, this myth that that you have to be hyper compatible and that any sign of incompatibility is a red flag. Mm. I think that gets people really panicked. And what I tell couples that I work with is every relationship has about ten issues that are actually unsolvable. They're unsolvable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the work isn't to solve them. The work is to work with them and figure out how do we communicate about these together so that we can manage, like uh, disconnects and sex drive is one of those things Mm -hmm. that sometimes is a core problem that's unsolvable. And that's okay. An unsolvable problem doesn't mean it's um, a completely incompatible relationship. Right. That's been a helpful framework for me. That is so helpful. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I'm going to use that for sure. <laughs> Tomorrow yeah, you're going to be like, listen, Peter, yeah. this is unsolvable. <laughs> That's his husband. That's right. All those dishes in the sink, that is an unsolvable, unsolvable. problem. Yeah. <laughs> That's unsolvable. <laughs> listen, Willow, yeah. it is, I, this laundry, unsolvable. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> we, I love that advice. Yes. <laughs> and also Sam and I are, li- are petty. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I love well, it. we are Gemini's. That's right. So, so we are petty. Right? It's, it's, this is not. We can't help it. It's unsolvable. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other thing that we yeah, want- one of the unsolvable <laughs> things is our astrological sign. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. All right. So one of the things that we do on our podcast is that we do a blind date, which is when we try and send people home with something that they think they're really going to like. So in this episode, we're going to ask you to do the blind date. So our blind date this episode Come is... Come As You Are. It's a book by Emily Nagoski. And, okay. um, is, that, is that a sexual... It is. Sexual Come it As is You a Are? Sexual and, you <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I, was, I think I was hearing your response to the contextual or the responsive versus spontaneous desire piece. And if mm-hmm. y'all haven't heard it, my, my guess is many of the listeners haven't either. This book really breaks that down in a super beautiful way. If you haven't Whoa. read it, gotta read it. Awesome. Awesome. Oh, I That's can't great. wait. Well, say you. the author again. Emily Nagowski. Okay. And thanks. if you're like, I don't have the attention span for a book, she has a TED talk <laughs> that is also very impactful <laughs> and 20 minutes long. Awesome. How Love dare that. you know me so well? <laughs> yeah. 
meeting people where thought. they're at. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> um, okay. And finally, um, we're definitely going to have you reiterate your Instagram handle, but where can people find you and how can they best support you mm. in whatever way that works for you? Yeah. So on Instagram, I'm queer sex therapy, really simple. Um, also, you can find me at theexpansivegroup.com. Um, we've got about 10 clinicians there, and we can work with folks all over the world. So if you're listening and thinking I could really use support around anything we've talked about, um, just fill out an intake form and, and we'll get you set up. That's awesome. awesome. Well, Casey, thank you so much for being here today. Um, I cannot stress how much I think our listeners uh, should follow you on Instagram at Queer Sex mm-hmm. Therapy um, because your content is not only really in, um, inclusive, um, it's so informative. Like it, it, it just it's just such great you do such great work to remind us like the full expanse and diversity of human sexuality Mm. and desire. And um, like, I always say like shared language is such a liberating tool. And I feel like you give people a language to talk about this thing (laughs) that we were taught from birth not to talk about. So make sure to check out queer sex therapy on Instagram and Casey, thank you so much for being here with us. Yeah, Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you guys. If you've enjoyed this episode, our dear listeners, make sure to stay tuned for more Head & Heart Work conversations every two weeks here on our primary feed. And if all else fails, just break up.